Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Ballow. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, along with Nathan Connolly, and each week we explore a different aspect of American history. Over the years, I've done a lot of backstory, but I never thought I would be floating around in salty water in a darkened isolation tank. But when one of our producers emailed me asking if I'd be willing to jump into a tank and see what this wellness craze was all about, well, how could I say no? But he never told me how long I'd actually be in the tank. So how long am I floating for? Oh, you'll be floating for 90 minutes. 90 minutes? Is that like in base 10? (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I don't think I can float for 90 minutes. I had, it actually goes by really fast. I had like three minutes in mind. A lot of people who come out who have that same apprehension that you do, yeah. they come out on the other end and they're they're very surprised as, All right. so as to how, how fast bad if we, it goes by. How bad if we compromise on something? Yeah. I don't like getting anxious just thinking about the notion of doing anything for 90 minutes. Um, uh, 45 minutes. I think that's very generous on my part. It sounds like you have a strong mind. But no, how about you just get in and we'll, we'll get you out. Oh. And you just stay in there. So here's the pod. <laughs> All right. And what if I don't float? I don't float so well. Did, did they tell you that? We floated any anybody from you know forty pounds to five hundred and ninety pounds. Okay, but we, all right, all right, uh, and I just lie there and do nothing for ninety minutes. Yes. Can I use my cell phone? No. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. All right. Let's do this. So. All right. Am I listening to music while I'm in here? No, not right. for, it's solitude. That's solitude. Yeah. Okay. Towel okay. right here, and uh, and then you're ready to step into the the pod. And basically, if you brace yourself on here, you can. You'll step in, and you'll grab this handle, and you will close the lid. I close the lid. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be in here with you. Okay. So. Um, All right. And I can open the lid. And you can open the lid at any time. Same way. Same. You're way. not going to lock it. There's no lock on it. There's no lock. Okay. No lock on it. Good. That's reassuring. All right. Keep in mind that, you know, you, you have this homogenous mixture in here, the water, you, and the air. And, you know, sometimes our brain really focuses on, okay, the temperature's not perfect. And then you're like, oh, I don't like the head pillow because I can feel it, or I'm bumping into the sides. Um, but the, the beautiful part about this, you know, homogenous environment in here is eventually it all becomes one. And so if you just let the mind go, you could even be on the side, you could have the head pillow on, but after five, 10 minutes, you're, that's just going to fade out. You're not even going to be able to feel it anymore. Okay. Um, so really just try and let go and relax. All right. Is there an exam afterwards? No. Okay. This will be the easiest thing you've ever done. (laughs) It already isn't. Brian, I I have to ask you, you're going to have to tell me something about what it felt like to be in an isolation tank. I'm so curious. I am not one who truly knows what it is to have a panic attack, but (laughs) I have a feeling that when I said, how long am I going to be in this tank? Three minutes. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. Minimum 90 minutes. That's about as close to a panic attack, I think, as I've ever had. I felt <laughs> anxious. I felt uncomfortable. Well, so when you were in there for that scary 90 minutes, was there any point at which 
you sort of accommodated yourself to it, and that kind of empty space began to feel, if not comfortable, then at least less threatening? Yes. I would say once I got through the first 10 or 12 minutes, I did achieve a kind of, I don't know, slightly different state. It was it was somewhere between being awake and being asleep. I certainly never never fell asleep. The thought of swallowing all that salt water really was something that kept me <laughs> and continues to keep me awake at night. But I did get in touch with a much more vivid recollection of some very early childhood memories. Um, wow. Yeah. So I certainly understand why people seek this out. So Joanne, I am publicly making this offer right now. Uh-oh. I will pay for 90 minutes of floating for you oh, if man. you would like to do it. What do you think? You're going to take me up on that? Oh, boy. Part of me, a kind of daredevil part of me, even though it sounded a little daunting at the beginning, is really, really curious. And the other part of me that really doesn't like being in water or the dark <laughs> is not so thrilled. <laughs> but I'm curious as heck. So ultimately, I probably might do it. So today on the show, we explore the history of solitude in America. You'll hear about the legend of the 227-year-old hermit who enchanted some early Americans and threatened others. We'll learn just how alone Henry David Thoreau really was during this experiment at Walden Pond. Plus, we'll dive into the Cold War history behind sensory deprivation tanks. In the late 18th century, debates about the nature of independence and liberty started bubbling up in the colonies and then the early republic. You know, when you think about the big stories of the 18th century, arguably the, the biggest is about individuals entering into or exiting from societies. You know, if you were to have to give a narrative to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, that would be it. Historian Eric Slaughter says early Americans started to wonder how these big ideas applied to their own personal lives. There's a persistent theme in American politics of people who just want to be left alone. One of the fantasies is the Crusoe-like fantasy that one could go it alone. Hmm. And you see, you see guidebooks to solitude, sort of defenses of solitude and encouragements towards rural retirement or rural retreat. And it's hard for us to think that, the, that life in the 18th century was so busy that people needed to retreat, retreat from it. But, um, but that's clearly how they saw it. And I think that's certainly one of the reasons why you do see hermits at all levels, from the retiring politician to the person who's simply been in business and is, is looking to sort of recreate within the natural world. So give us a couple examples of people in this period who really praised and even valorized the idea of solitude. One thinks of Thomas Jefferson, whose first draft of a name for his retreat in Virginia was not Monticello, but the Hermitage. Mm. Or you could think of George Washington's retirement as, as a desire to leave public life and return to uh, a kind of solitude. Uh, you also have folks like Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who, when he was just in his early 20s, penned a 100-page poem about uh, the power hours of solitude and continued to add to it over the next few years until he had produced a 200-page poem about <laughs> solitude. And one of the most popular fictional stories circulating at the time is about two Virginia gentlemen who head west and stumble upon a very unusual solitary fellow. Hundreds of miles into the interior, they, they find a cave inhabited by what purports to be a 227-year-old hermit. <laughs> and uh, he must like, introduce himself and say, like, "Hi, I'm a 227-year-old uh, hermit." And you know, he they they coaxed his story out of him. He was a vegetarian, um, which he said was good for his uh, physical constitution, but also meant that animals didn't fear him. He wasn't sort of naturally aggressive, and so they all left him alone. And he had spent his time really, um, you know, in a kind of 
meditation, thinking on the important things of this world and the next, and um, reading through the newspapers and the almanacs and and the imprints of of these years, you find this character absolutely everywhere. And I even found. Mm. I think a newspaper advertisement for a waxworks exhibition, a sort of early Madame Tussaud uh, waxworks exhibition in New York City in 1789, where the government was sitting, that included this old hermit next to uh, a Native American, next to George Washington, next to the British royal family. Wow. It was quite a popular hermit, I think you could say. Um, <laughs> as hermits go. Uh, as hermits go. Uh, quite, a, quite a popular hermit. Some were enchanted by these tales of hermits. For others, there was something in the idea of the solitary life which seemed threatening to the social order. They saw it as unnatural, maybe even sinister. You do see this uh, frequent denigration within the political theory of the day of this kind of notion of solitude. So a lot of social contract thinkers feel that, that human beings are naturally sociable, and so they want to come together uh, in conjugal relationships, in social relationships, in church relationships, and, and so forth. And that men are, by nature, social beings. Thomas Paine is somebody who always valorizes um, union. And so, consequently, solitude is a kind of negative category for him. He gives you an example at the beginning of Common Sense, his great political pamphlet of early 1776 that the strength of a single individual could probably not erect a building in the wilderness, whereas four or five people together could. Mm. And then even after the Constitution, one of the great framers, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, and one of the first law professors of the United States gives a series of lectures, sort of really one of the first public law lectures at the University of Pennsylvania in 1790 and 1791. And he gives a lecture on the social contract um, in which he, he proposes the thought experiment. You know, what if suddenly you were reduced to solitude? So, you know, again, the question of what is, what is natural for human beings, individuality and individualism or social collectivity is certainly uh, on his mind. These disagreements about the value of solitude start to play into debates about the nature of the social contract, the role of government, and where rights come from. There's no getting around the idea that in the 18th century, uh, people who think in terms of contract theory and, and the origin of, of governments and origin of states, they tend to think solitary individuals carry a certain bundle of rights out of the state of nature. And they have various views of what the state of nature might look like, ranging from, you know, uh, those who see, like Locke, perfect liberty and perfect equality, um, to those who see, like Hobbes, uh, a life that is, um, well, what's the famous phrase? Solitary, poor, nasty, nasty brutish, brutish, and, and short. short. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> right? But solitary is the first word there. Mm, um, interesting. And, you know, I, the idea really, you know, the main political philosophy of, say, the Declaration or of the American Revolution in general tends to be that God gave natural rights to human beings. Human beings use some of those rights to create civil governments, but still there's always the retained right of, of revolution or the right to alter or abolish when a government is found to be imperfect in its protection of those uh, inalienable rights. So in theory, a person in solitude helps create a democratic society when they consent to the social contract, but in practice, the act of choosing to be alone was still suspicious. James Madison embodies this tension between both valuing solitude as necessary for independent decision-making and recognizing that solitude can be anti-democratic. So, you know, you do see a lot of denigration of closet politicians or sort of utopian thinking that that is not done uh, in public or, or, or done with collective decision making. I do see Madison as somebody who is torn between this desire to kind of be a closet politician and also to have decisions that are made collectively. I think there were many decisions made collectively that he didn't like. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite lines of his comes from a memo he 
wrote just before he appeared in, in Philadelphia. It's a famous memo on the vices of the political system of the United States. He right. wrote in that, in that memo that you can't rely on character or religion um, within popular assemblies, political assemblies, to protect minority rights because the conduct of every popular assembly acting on oath, which he said was the strongest of religious ties, shows that individuals join without remorse in acts against which their <laughs> consciences would revolt if proposed to them separately in their closet. So people act in, in, a, in a way that, that they wouldn't act if you presented certain cases to them. So the question of who we are when we're alone is not a new question. Both before and after the revolution, debates continued about whether solitude helps us reflect and make kinder decisions, or whether we become more selfish when we're by ourselves. Eric Slaughter is associate professor of English and deputy dean of humanities at the University of Chicago. He is the author of The State as a Work of Art, The Cultural Origins of the Constitution. Nestled in the woods of a small town in Massachusetts lay Walden Pond, where Henry David Thoreau undertook the most famous experiment in simple living in American history. Thoreau believed that the only way to find meaning and lead a purposeful life was to renounce the rigors of society. So in 1845, he built a tiny 10-foot by 15-foot cabin in a secluded spot near Walden Pond. His experiment was a meditation on the virtues of nature, spirituality, and solitude. I find it wholesome to be alone the greater part of the time. To be in company, even with the best, is soon wearisome and dissipating. I love to be alone. I never found the companion that was so companionable as solitude. For exactly two years, two months... In two days, Thoreau immersed himself in nature and logged his observations. During most of this time, he was alone. And for Thoreau, solitude was the key to unlocking a higher consciousness. After returning to society in 1847, he eventually published Walden, a memoir of his extended retreat in the woods and one of the most celebrated books in American literature. He valued solitude, and he found that he needed some every day. And if he didn't get it, he got pretty testy and unpleasant to be around. That's scholar Laura DeSalle-Walls. She says that Thoreau saw solitude as a creative space for writing and reflection, as well as a means to live the best life. The difference is that he also needed to be around people. So there's a little back and forth going on here. I wouldn't say entirely bipolar, but... You know, he was a surprisingly warm and loving and, and sensitive person, which is probably part of the problem, is that when he was hurt, he would get very prickly and mm -hmm. withdraw. And he found it exhausting to be around people, and he was terrible at small talk. In other words, he's the classic introvert. And so Thoreau turned that need for solitude into a kind of a creative resource. Well, he was pretty much beloved by a lot of people, even though they recognized he was something of an odd duck. It's not that he was shunned. He wasn't in solitude right. because he was rejected, right? This right. is what he chose. <laughs> yeah, he, he was definitely somebody who um, people identified from early on as different. Uh, later on, they would have said, might have said eccentric. Mm -hmm. I, either, I think people were either attracted to him and found him um, lovable and, and really engaging to be around, and he was always interesting, clearly. And other people just couldn't tolerate him, and it became very mutual. So he, it was a sort of self-selecting process, and you right. even see that in responses to his writing. When his books went out, and Walden, for instance, uh, most reviews were just ecstatic, or at least very positive. But every now mm -hmm. and then there would be one very huffy kind of, who does he think he is? It's odd about solitary people, especially when it's out there as a kind of creative um, you know, almost a, a kind of brand, because right. they're a bit threatening. They can, in a sense, be criticizing society or criticizing you as part of society. And some people share that and says, yeah, me too. And other people are like, hey, 
you're rejecting everything I care about. And so um, that kind of divisiveness um, sort of surrounds him too. So you mentioned Walden, which is the way that most people know about Throw being alone. Uh, how alone was he at Walden? Well, he was alone. It sounds like I'm trying to be funny. I'm not. He was alone when nobody else was there. So, <laughs> <laughs> which was a fair amount of the time. He's out there on the edge of town. There weren't any houses anywhere around him, not inhabited houses. He was a little off the main road and across the pond from the railroad, which means there were people always just a few hundred yards away. But, uh, you know, Walden Pond was the place that people went for picnics and to fish and to swim, uh, which means daytime activities. And uh, there he was all day and all night, too. So once the sun went down, he was totally alone, and uh, he really valued that. So one of the points is that he was there 24 hours a day, which means that most of those hours he was alone. But then in the daylight hours, especially on weekends, eh, people visited him all the time. And, hmm. well, he had a system. If he was happy to have company, he would put a chair out in front of his door. And if the chair wasn't there, it meant either I'm not here, I'm out on a walk, or I am busy, and so respect that, and people did. So the chair was visible from the road, so people knew uh, whether or not Henry was sort of entertaining company. And uh, I get the sense from accounts of conversations with him that it was kind of a back porch cracker barrel philosophizing time. It must have been kind of fun. Or he'd be hoeing his beans, and people would holler at him from the road. So there you get this rhythm of people going either to entertain themselves or because they were genuinely friends and wanted to visit, or the alone time, the solitary uh, dawn, the uh, morning hours, the times before uh, people were in that social mode when Thoreau was completely in his own world. Some people have pointed to the proximity of the railroad and of of Concord itself as evidence of Thoreau's hypocrisy, uh, that he's talking as if he's out on the, the wilderness and instead he's, you know, he could walk to somebody's house for a meal yeah. <laughs> at any point. So how do we think about that? Is, is this, is it theater? Is it sort of imagined solitude is more important than the actual physical solitude? Help us understand that. Well, first of all, when he went to Walden, he'd been dreaming of doing this ever since probably childhood. It goes all the way back to a memory when he was about five years old. So what he imagined was solitude, and that was the dream. So he tried various ways of doing this, and none of them brought that kind of experience. He, 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 to him, it would be a creative kind of retreat. He wanted to write. He wanted to write poetry, and he wanted to have this deep encounter with nature, not not to be socializing, but to really try to go one-on-one -on -one with, with what really was a spiritual quest, a kind mm -hmm. of godhead. And so the chance opened up. Emerson happened to be on a walk at Walden Pond. He happened to be there at a time when a group of speculators were bidding on this piece of property. And he happened to feel in a good mood, and he happened to have money at that moment, and he said, I'll buy it. And that was the land. So he comes back into town and tells Henry, and very quickly the, the, the deal is made that this is where Henry will finally have the chance to realize this long-held dream. So Henry builds on Emerson's land, and he thinks of himself as almost like he's going to be high up in the mountains. Well, he's not. I mean, he's right there on the edge of town. And, <laughs> yeah, and right. you know, the railroads are, so the railroad workers come by and say, hey, what are you doing? And people come by and, and, you know, they can see the house. Where are you building this house way out here? And this is the turn that's fascinating because he could have said, go away. I don't want to talk to you. He doesn't. He starts talking with them. He, when they ask him, what is he doing? He tells them. He's a born teacher. He gets engaged by this process of trying to sort of open up his heart to, to what he thinks is important. Right. So it's almost a process of, of conversion or, or making disciples. And right, so right. on the one hand, he still cherishes this dream of solitude and 
and intense spiritual elevation in what really does sound a lot like the, the kind of classic hermit retreat. On the other hand, circumstances have drawn him into this other mode. And of course, the, the third element to this is, look, he's got responsibilities. He's moved about a mile away from his family, but he's still the eldest son. He still has to go back and take care of family chores. They want to have him around for Sunday dinner. <laughs> uh, he has to uh, make a few dollars, so he has to go do his laboring. So he's in town um, every two or three days to take care of this or that piece of business. And so that just isn't part of Walden, right? Who wants to read about that? That's just ordinary stuff. Right. So he doesn't really tell us in Walden, except there's a couple places where he says, well, sure. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't change the basic point that he's trying to make. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that Walden is authentically about solitude, but it's not really about isolation. That's a good way to put it. And what's interesting about exactly that is once his experiment is, at Walden is done, and it was always an experiment, it was always going to be temporary. So once it's over, he's back in town. He lives at the Emersons, then he goes back and lives with his own family, big households, lots of people. But what he brings with him is a kind of ethic of periodic solitude. Again, solitude is a kind of creative space or resource um, that really he thinks that old people could use. And the trick is, can you do that on Main Street? I mean, if it's really real, right, you shouldn't have to artificially remove yourself from right, society, right, right. create some kind of false bubble. You should be able to bring it with you back to the streets of New York or wherever you are. And and so, in that sense, it's something you carry with you. It's an mm -hmm. ethic for living, not for retreating from life. So, today, people seek solitude from the digital world in which we seem so mm -hmm. immersed. Any speculation on <laughs> advice that we might get from Henry David Thoreau in, in our <laughs> that's, time? That's an easy one. Put down the damn phone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I mean... He would find this an assault, a 24-7 unrelenting assault on everything that solitude makes possible. So the sense that you would never touch technology. No, I mean, he was fascinated by technology, but his demand was that you understand it and that you make sure that you use it, that it doesn't use you. Right, right. So his famous line about, we do not ride on the railroad, it rides upon us. That was his beef with the railroad, not that it existed. Yes, it existed, and he was fascinated by it, and he rode the railroad himself, um, appreciated what it brought. But he drew the line when he thought that it was, as with all technologies, turning and controlling those of us who think that we're using it, but in fact, we're becoming cogs in its big mechanism. So if you can use your cell phone in such a way that you can put it down, walk away from it, uh, and then take it up later on only when you're ready for it, then great. But he worries and would worry that today that's not what is happening, that people are controlled by it. And they're engineered, these devices, to make us need them. And that would make him very suspicious. He would think we were slaves to it. Laura DeSalle Walls is the William P. and Hazel B. White Professor of English at the University of Notre Dame. She's the author of Henry David Thoreau, A Life. Not everybody who has sought solitude has shared Thoreau's thirst for transcendence. There have been people who had to retreat into isolation for their safety as a way to survive. In late August of 1911, a young worker was walking through a slaughterhouse in Oroville, California, 
when he came across a startling sight. It was a man he did not know. The man was emaciated and despondent. He was searching for food. There was no sense that he was turning himself in or acquiescing in any way. This is Jace Weaver. He's the director of the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. Weaver says the starving man was the last known survivor of a tribe called the Yahi. After he was found in the slaughterhouse, the man was put under the supervision of an anthropologist named Alfred Krober. Krober decided to give the indigenous man a name. Ishi just means man in the Yana language because under the protocol of the Yana, a person can't give his name until another Yahi introduces him, and there was no one left to introduce him. So Krober just named him Man. There was no one left to introduce Ishi because the rest of his family and his tribe had died, disappeared, or been killed. In 1865, the Yahi were attacked by whites in the Three Knolls Massacre. They killed more than half the tribe. 33 of the Yahi survived, but they continued to be attacked by ranchers and hunters. Therefore, Ishii and his family decided to go into hiding and evade white people as much as possible. They stayed in the solitude for more than 40 years, but despite their efforts, grief still found Ishii and his family. He had a terrifying encounter when some engineers, surveyors, were coming through. And he and his sister panicked and ran in opposite directions, and he never saw his sister again. By 1911, Ishii was about 50 years old and alone. When he's found searching for food, Ishii's hair was still burned short. This was an act of mourning for the Yahi. Ishii's mother had recently died. She was the last of his companions. Now, without speaking a word of English, Ishii is thrust into Western society and is taken to live at the Museum of Anthropology in San Francisco. It was reported in the newspapers when Krober returned with him, and the public flocked to the museum. And Ishii hated crowds, and he hated to be touched, and he learned to shake hands politely, and he would readily put out his hand if someone stuck theirs out, but he never initiated handshakes. He would literally, uh, in the face of a faceless crowd, panic, have a panic attack. and He would uh, go rigid. He would lose speech. And yet, Krober did turn down all more exploitative offers to put him on the vaudeville circuit. He saw himself as a protector of Ishii. What kind of language did the press use to describe Ishii? The last wild Indian. Whatever's meant by last and whatever's meant by wild, that wasn't Ishii, although he was the last Yahi. This label of the last wild Indian was a large part of his appeal and fascination with the public. During this period, anthropologists, as well as all Americans, thought that Indians were vanishing. And so here was their last chance to see an Indian as he was. An opportunity to see Ishii, the uncontaminated aborigin recently discovered near Oroville and believed to be the last wild Indian in the country, will be given to the public Sunday afternoon at the Museum of Anthropology. Curator A.L. Krober of the museum has arranged to have Ishii on exhibition from 1 o'clock until 4. Between those hours, Ishii will allow the people of the city to inspect him weaving a fishnet, chipping arrow points, or engaged in some other native occupation. San Francisco Chronicle, October 14th, 1911. And so Krober and a colleague decide they want to see where Ishii had lived, and they go on a camping trip. Can you tell us about that? Yes, Krober and Saxton Pope persuaded Ishii over Ishii's own objections to accompany them on a camping trip back to his homelands. Theodora Krober, who wrote the book Ishii, and she says he was happy on the trip, but all of her evidence belies that. He was distracted. He was fidgety. Remember, it was where his last relatives had died. It was for him the land of the dead. And when Krober suggests that they have to get back to the city, 
Ishii, who hated horseback riding, immediately packed up the base camp and got on the horse and was ready to go. In fact, Krober and Pope hated to go back to civilization, quote-unquote. They wanted to stay longer, even though Ishii was clearly agitated. Weaver says this camping trip shows how Ishii was caught between two worlds of torment. At the museum, he's seen as a spectacle and living exhibit. Meanwhile, back in his homeland, he's met with nothing but the memory of death and despair. Nevertheless, Ishii endured life at the museum, but only for five years. He died of tuberculosis in 1916. Krober is away at the time, and he wires Saxton Pope, who was a physician. He did not want an autopsy. Ishii had stumbled one day in on Pope in the dissection room and saw these bodies in various stages of dissection and was horrified and appalled. And so Krober, again, trying to be protective, wires Pope and says an autopsy would not do anything other than be macabre. If it's said that it's the interest of science, tell them I say science can go to hell. But arrive too late, and Pope had already performed the autopsy. And there's continuing controversy about this, right? About the, the consequences of that autopsy? Yes. Ishii's brain was separated from his body and was sent to an anthropologist at the Smithsonian in Washington. And although Ishii's body was buried, his brain was not with it. And it wasn't until the 1990s that it was found, the Smithsonian saying it was in a curatorial facility in Silver Spring, Maryland, and they didn't know anybody had been looking for it. And then there's a, a reburial in 2000, is my understanding? Correct. Reuniting his brain with his ashes. Uh, I assume that the brain was cremated as well. Not surprisingly, and not without cause, white Americans feel guilty for the enormous death and destruction they unleashed among the indigenous people. Do you think there's a kind of compensation that people are searching for when they go to a museum to see Ishii? Yes, I think that's, that's right. And you're probably familiar with what's called Chief Seattle's speech. Now tell me about that. Chief Seattle was a chief in the Puget Sound area. And in 1855, he signed a treaty agreeing to leave where Seattle now is, uh, and go to a reservation on another part of the Sound. And he made a speech that day. In the early 1970s, a version of that speech became wildly popular because it talked about we're all related, interconnected, there's a web of existence. But that version bore no resemblance to the speech that was recorded that day, taken down that day. It was made up for an environmental documentary by a screenwriter. The end of the 73 speech is, no one can escape the common destiny. We may be brothers after all, we shall see. The version that was recorded that day, at the end, Chief Seattle says, when your children and your children's children think themselves alone, will be there with them. They will never be alone. The teeming masses of my dead will be there with them. So let them treat Indians justly, for the dead are not altogether powerless. Jace Weaver is the director of the Institute of Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. In the midst of Cold War paranoia, neurophysiologist John C. Lilly sought to understand the nature of the mind, what kinds of threats it can endure, and how it can persevere through extreme adversity. Historian D. Graham Burnett explains how Lilly's initial research included examining the minds of humans and animals in order to better understand the effects of isolation and close contact on the mind. We see work on what gets called chronic contact experiments where you isolate a, a person and later an animal with a researcher who's 
job is to kind of build an intimacy relationship, possibly even something like dependency with a researcher with whom there's cohabitation for the purpose of accessing information or creating a new kind of bond. And then isolation. And isolation involves, as you know, being cut off. Why isolation? People had, um, people had noticed that under conditions of durational isolation, humans and animals undergo real psychic and in some cases even physical change. And one component of Lily's research involved developing sensory deprivation and isolation conditions linked to the effort to figure out what would happen if, for instance, U.S. submariners or astronauts or those who uh, manned remote sensing stations for the military, how would those folks fare if they suddenly found themselves cut off and isolated for long periods of huh. time? So there was already a research tradition of sensory deprivation. We're talking about putting sleeves on people's hands, um, hoods over their heads and faces, goggles. These kinds of technologies had been used for quite a while. And what would happen is you'd set somebody up in one of these depauperate sensory environments, thinned out, reduced sensory environments for long periods of time. And you wanted to be able to test to see what happened to your folks if you left them like that for hours or potentially even days, since that could be part of a battery of tests for astronauts, pilots, submariners, et cetera. Around the same time, Lily is becoming increasingly interested in the minds of dolphins. Lily was uh, a self-mythologizer, and he himself spent a lot of time talking about his own breakthrough moment. Um, it occurred, as he tells the story again and again, when he was running a set of experiments on dolphin brains using direct electrodes, and there was a kind of a panel switch that the dolphin could hit to turn off a charge that was being delivered to the brain. And Lily, who'd worked for a long time with monkeys, uh, felt that the dolphin learned much, much faster than he, Lily, was expecting how to turn off the charge. And he also came to believe that some of the squeaky phonations that the dolphin, in considerable distress, was making began as he heard them to emulate human speech in certain ways. So in a literal sense, Lily kind of felt he heard a voice while doing this experimental huh. work, and uh, that began to change everything. I want to say again that that's a story I'm telling you Lily told. Regardless of whether the story Lily told was accurate, he does eventually move away from mapping the brain and using electrodes. Instead, he begins to try to understand consciousness by asking some pretty trippy questions. Lily's work with dolphins and what it's like to be a dolphin, to be in this weightless environment, not to have hands, to be immersed in the ocean, that work was tangled up with his interest in the conditions of the human body in these darkened, immersive mm. flotation environments. Mm. Uh, he was thinking his way toward the mind-brain of the dolphin, but he was fascinated by what happened to the human mind-brain when it was placed under comparable conditions. So I don't know if our producer told you, but uh, I floated for 90 minutes. It was a kind of plastic tank, looked very modern to me. What did the original flotation tanks look like? The original flotation tanks did not look like the sort of sexy California pod environment that you probably experienced in your float. Well, it looked sexy until I got into it. <laughs> the original tanks, because they were produced in sort of Cold War bioscience research facilities were a little creepy, scary looking, honestly. I mean, imagine putting a kind of hood on that was attached to a respirator and having your kind of body uh, fully suspended, almost in a, a fetal position inside a cement tank of regulated temperature controlled water, soundproofed box. Wow. Yeah, that does sound scary. I mean, we have to remind ourselves that while now we think of flotation tanks as, again, sort of new age healing spaces, this technology 
comes out of a line of Cold War research that was tangled up with really creepy research enterprises, like, you know, the kind of work of MKUltra, the sort of experimental skunk works of a set of pretty vicious Cold War spooks yeah. who were willing to do some really uh, icky things to each other. And the kinds of icky things that they did was put people in little boxes for long periods of time until they went stark raving mad. <laughs> and flotation tanks um, have their birth at the edges of that sort of research, um, not out of the work of like Esalen Institute, feel good meditation. Uh, so how do we get from point A to point B? That's a great question. And in fact, I would argue that John Lilly is a big part of that story because across the watershed of the 1960s, Lilly himself walks across from being a slightly scarifying Cold War biomedical mind-brain researcher with ties to the intelligence apparatus to being a tuned in, turned on, dropped out guy wearing jumpsuits and headed west to Esalen to conduct sort of mindfulness-oriented consciousness-rising type experiences. By the time he's headed west in the mid-60s, he's increasingly focused on the idea that whales and dolphins are possibly kind of peace-loving, hyper-musical, master intelligences that have evolved without hands, so they're incapable of sort of manipulating their environments, so they're kind of into sort of just being men. That's far out. Correct. And the tanks go with him too. That is the same tanks that were once upon a time <laughs> part of slightly creepy tests of the psychic robustness of potential military recruits go with Lily when he opens up his dolphin research lab in the Caribbean because he increasingly thinks maybe floating in such tanks can help him think his way into the life form of an aquatic mammal. What you're describing, Graham, uh, is quite different than the traditional... Uh, objective scientific approach of being outside of one's subject and gazing at it, quote, objectively. Mm. Was Lily aware of that? And what, did, did, he, did he invert that whole process of looking inside himself in many ways uh, consciously? Oh, Brian, I mean, here you put your finger on what I literally take to be you know, one of the very most interesting questions that can be asked of intellectual history and in a sense of epistemology, of like a theory of knowledge. So in essence, you're asking me, did something change from Lily standing outside of his scientific object and trying to understand it from the outside objectively to Lily sort of trying to understand his object by... um converging with it, casting his soul in its direction, inhabiting it in a kind of, what one might almost say, kind of an anthropological sense, ethnographic knowledge. So I think that question of the difference between knowledge at a distance and knowledge that closes the gap is just about the most interesting question we've got. And where Lily's concerned, my short answer is yes with a capital Y. At the same time, I think that development in his own thought has to be linked to a wider transformation in how we think about knowledge across the 50s and into the 70s, where uh, distance begins to fail in new ways, and there is a hunger for closing of the gap. And while, admittedly, Lily never figures out how to totally close the gap, Burnett says Lily's efforts are still remarkable. Lily and the researchers like him were extraordinarily courageous and slightly frightening 
spelunkers, like cave divers, into consciousness. They were genuinely brave and a little masochistic slash sadistic in their fascination with deep diving into the brain, their own and the brains of others. And so I feel Lily's work with the dolphins, his work in flotation tanks, this work all came out of his deep, deep driving fearlessness to get inside his brain and other brains. It seems counterintuitive, but Lily thought that only through intense solitude could we fully connect with others. And for Graham Burnett, that is an essential realization for us to ponder even today. I believe very strongly that the kind of integrity of the kind of conditions for interiority in a human subject have come under new pressure over the last 10 to 15 years as a result of changes in our kind of media and mediated universe. So a sense of what it is simply to be inside one's own mind, I would argue, is a really infungible condition of possibility for political subjectivity, for a sense of agency, responsibility, identity, self-sameness. So the reason the theme of solitude is so crucial now is that those conditions for the for the simple being inside oneself and with oneself are changing very rapidly and it is more difficult than ever to build that habit and to preserve that habitus. D. Graham Burnett is a professor of history at Princeton University and author of The Sounding of the Whale, Science and Cetaceans in the 20th Century. do it for us today. Do get in touch. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send us an email to backstory at virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. And a special thank you to Jordan and Ted at Aquafloat in Charlottesville for introducing me to floating for this episode. It's time to come out now. <laughs> Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is professor of the humanities and president emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>